President Marion, Rotarians and guests, because there are such a large number of distinguished Rotary officers, I'm going to take a shortcut by acknowledging your presence with the example of a, used by a past world president of Rotary who said, let's assume all Rotary protocols have been covered. Today, we honour an eminent Australian, Sir Angus Mitchell, who was our president in 1931-32, district governor in 1934-35, and again in 37-38. In 1948-49, he became the first Australian to be elected president of Rotary International. The club commemorated his great service by initiating the Angus Mitchell Oration in 1971, which has been delivered by truly eminent Australians. I'm delighted to introduce Adjunct Professor John Skerritt as our centenary year Angus Mitchell Orator. He honours us by flying down from Canberra specifically to deliver the oration. Being an oration, it will not be followed by questions. I'm delighted to introduce him as Deputy Secretary of the Department of Health. He has a high profile, heading up the Therapeutic Goods Administration and the Office of Drug Control. You've probably seen him frequently on television programs, standing next to the Prime Minister, supporting plans for COVID control. His CV is in the bulletin, but a few highlights are that he has a PhD from the University of Sydney and the University Medal in Pharmacology. But his skills are ever so much broader, having worked in health, medicine, agriculture, food, pharmacy, water management, and public administration. His connection with Rotary is extensive, having been awarded what we now call a Rotary Ambassadorial Scholarship for postdoctoral work at the University of Michigan. In 2012, he was honoured by Rotary International being the worldwide winner of the Global Alumni Service to Humanity Award for his contribution to greater understanding and peace through service to humanity. So John is doubly appropriate to deliver this year's Angus Mitchell oration entitled, The COVID-19 Pandemic Response in Australia and the Region vaccines, medicines, and masks, where to from here? Over to you, John. Thank you for those kind words, uh, Bob. Uh, President Marion, uh, Past Rotary International President Ian, Past District Governor Juliet, District Governors, uh, ladies, gentlemen and members. Uh, it is indeed an honour to have been invited to present this oration in its 100th year. 
In the 100th year since the Rotary Club of Melbourne was founded in April 21. And of course, it's also the 60th year since Genghis Mitchell's death. And he was also, as I think all of us know, notable for being the first Australian to be appointed president of RI. Now, despite what my children think, my personal association with the Rotary movement doesn't quite go back 100 years. But on reflection the other day, it's actually almost 50 years. I was charter president of, uh, of the Interact Club of Carlingford in 1974-5. So in, in three years' time, that will become 50 years, which is a bigger shock to me than I'm sure it is to you. Uh, and I remain a close personal relationship with Rotary. Uh, my, my spouse, Amanda, who's here today, is current president of another club in suburban Melbourne, Hampton, while simultaneously being the CEO of a Victorian government authority. And uh, her practical and emotional support's been just absolutely critical during what has really been the most challenging but probably the most important uh, 15 months and the most pressured 15 months of my career in the last 15 months since the COVID pandemic. It, it, it's a blur and if it wasn't without Amanda, I don't think uh, I'd be here now. Now the previous uh, orators are an absolutely impressive list. We've heard of that and I can only hope that I won't let you down. So I've had the responsibility wearing several hats as a Deputy Secretary of the National Health Department of helping lead the overall uh, Australian response to COVID with my fortunately better known colleague, Brendan Murphy. And while being part of the overall planning and execution of a response, my personal challenge has been uh, overarching uh, responsibility for the nation's medical regulator, the TGA. I'm gonna mainly talk about vaccines, but I'll reflect on some other areas that were important, hence the title of this presentation. And I'll also reflect on work that we're doing in, in the broader Asia-Pacific region, because uh, one of the strong tenets, I, I guess, of Rotary, but also of the work we do, is to work with those who are less fortunate than ourselves. And of course, uh, it's been a challenging time for we Australians, but I can reassure you it's been a much more challenging time for those in developing countries in our region. So to start at the beginning, I was involved in a discussion about which vaccines Australia should have. And we, quite, we hedge bets quite deliberately with the technology. And I think history will reflect in a similar way than it did to the mission of putting a man on the moon. I was a young boy at the time. And when we recall that it was eight years from President Kennedy's announcement about putting a man on the moon to having a man on the moon, we actually got these vaccines out in less than a year. And we shouldn't forget that uh, the two main vaccines that are out now, those technologies were not out in human vaccines before that, to, in any significant amount, but been some toying around with Ebola. So we didn't even know that those technologies would work a year ago. In April 2020, we didn't know that any of those vaccine technologies would work. And of course, one of the attractions of the mainstay of, of our program, the AstraZeneca vaccine, is that it's made right here in, in Melbourne, in, in, in Australia. And, and, and that manufactures now reality. I want to reflect briefly on Australia's success in managing the pandemic. And being a student of history, it's always useful to look at history. If we go back to World War I, the so-called war to end all wars, there was an estimated 10 million military dead globally, another 7 million, sad, sadly, civilian deaths. But in contrast, the uh, pandemic, the, inf the great influenza pandemic of 1918, 2021, actually killed 50 million people, three times the number. And it just shows the relevant, relative, I should say, 
impact of, of pandemic compared with what we think is all-out warfare. Now, another lesson from history is that Australia's death toll was actually comparatively lower than other countries. So uh, we only had 15,000 deaths that, that we've attributed to the Spanish flu in Australia. And again, as we have seen in the current pandemic, Australia's geographic isolation was a key thing then. And it's amazing how some of these very basic fundamental protections have served us well 100 years later. What else served Australia? The early decision to close the borders? And notwithstanding the odd political difference, and yes, you hear them, that's what our political masters have to do, there's actually been, and as one who has worked behind the scenes with the Prime Minister, ministers and premiers at times, there's actually been strong unity, maybe not in front of a camera for the journalists, but there's actually been strong unity across different levels of government and between governments of different political colours. And in Australia also, a strong recognition of the importance of following expert medical and scientific advice. And notwithstanding our Larrikin uh, stereotype, as a society, we've also been highly compliant with government-mandated measures. When I talk to colleagues from the United States, they say, how do you actually get those people to wear masks? How do you actually get those people to observe social distancing or staying at home when there's a curfew or, or a lockdown or whatever on? Now, as a regulator, whether it's during a pandemic or during more normal times, our role is to facilitate access to new therapies and tests, vaccines, uh, medicines and so forth, devices, but at the same time being confident that those products are safe and effective. It's an overused term, but the COVID pandemic did bring unprecedented times for us at the TGA. One of the very first things that came through when you, you will all remember those pictures of planes being uh, grounded overnight and lined up in deserts, uh, not flying anywhere. The problem was, of course, that uh, products like medicines, while a number do come in by ship, many came in by, by planes, especially the most critical ones. And so in March, April last year, through to May and onwards, we were faced with the challenge of cancellation of 90% of incoming flights. And even those so-called passenger flights often carry a greater value of product in their bellies in, in, in terms of cargo than they do in terms of paying passengers. And so we had to rapidly form a coalition of industry, peak medical and pharmacy organisations, governments and hospitals, met weekly. We got permission to share information on who had what stock. We identified whether there were medicines that we could bring in that had been approved by other countries. If, say, the planes weren't running to Italy or the UK, could we get a medicine from Japan or the US or wherever? We imposed controls on maximum dispensing at pharmacies because there was panic buying, not just of toilet paper, but of medicines. And uh, we also permitted pharmacists to, if it was two half-strength tablets, they could dispense that as opposed to one full-strength tablet. We also recognised the importance of hand sanitising, but here was a problem. And while you may not realise it now, it seems that every supermarket and pharmacy has hand sanitizer on special. Back in March, April, May last year, there was actually a shortage of it globally. And we realised that, uh, being Australia, there's an awful lot of organisations that make alcohol. And, uh, but the trouble is they weren't making it as hand sanitizer. So we had to work with those organisations where they were small wineries or big alcohol manufacturers and, and breweries and everything in between to pivot their manufacture to sanitizer to ease the way in a regulatory sense for them to get these products in the market. So we developed simple recipes and said, if you stick to this recipe, you don't have to go through all the paperwork of applying for approval, but we will check that your recipe is what you say it is. And it actually not only 
enabled people to have access to hand sanitizer when they needed it, but it also provided cash flow for those businesses, especially those who didn't have tourists coming into breweries and distilleries anymore. In other areas, we had to stand up teams seven days a week. And uh, while I'm often the public face of the, of the uh, 800 staff we have, it's them who, many of whom, uh, family and all, uh, worked extremely and continue to work extremely long hours over that period. And so we were able to approve products in weeks or sometimes days rather than in months. We also worked with the Australian industry, not only on manufacture of face masks, but things like locally made vent ventilators. Now, fortunately, even at the height of the lockdown here in Melbourne last year, we didn't come anywhere near the worst case predictions of the numbers of ventilators that we would have needed. Remember those pictures of places like Italy that, that struggled. They just didn't have enough ventilators for their patients. So importantly, we had to check a lot of the manufacturing of those products. So one of our key roles is to look at how those products are manufactured and, and the factories where they're made. Now normally that will involve sending a team either interstate or quite often overseas to, to look at those medicine factories. And of course we were faced with say, well, we couldn't get people on planes. Uh, and even so, in those countries, they probably wouldn't let us travel to the factories. What do we do? And some of our younger staff who, I guess, do this when they go surfing and mountain bike riding said, well, why don't we get the people over there to put one of those cameras on their helmets and get a staff member from a factory in China or India or Thailand to walk around the factory, point it at the equipment and everything where, where they need it. And it, it actually ended up being almost as good as being there. And so, we sought innovative ideas from every level, and it enabled us to check those factories and enable those medicines to come in. But now I'll go to a topic that's on everyone's mind, COVID vaccines. And uh, as people know, there's two main vaccines approved already in Australia, a couple more where when we get the final data, we'll, we'll look at them and, and similarly uh, make a decision on them. But there'll be, but that's not the end of it. There'll be a dozen, maybe 20 more vaccines coming through in the next couple of years. They might be vaccines against variants, but they could also be technologies such as vaccines that don't require a needle, that can be inhaled up the nose. Vaccines that might be able to be swallowed as a tablet. Or, or vaccines that are more targeted towards groups such as children. I'll very briefly outline the steps that TGA and other regulators globally take to assess the tens of thousands of pages of data that we get on each vaccine before deciding whether or not to approve it. We also work very closely with other regulators globally. I would say almost a day doesn't go past when we don't talk, and certainly almost a few hours doesn't go past when we don't email other regulators globally. And so, for example, 7am this morning we were talking to the British regulator about a particular safety issue. And uh, I sometimes joke to my friends that uh, now at 62, I seem to be having more late nights than I had as a uni student. Unfortunately, I'm spending them on video conferences and not in bars. So what data do we review? Well, first of all, the safety. And that ranges from safety in rats and mice and other animals through to the results of clinical trials and monitoring the people who've been in the trials afterwards. We also do a lot of work on real world monitoring of safety, and I'll come back to that. Secondly, we look at efficacy, how well the vaccine works. And most of those trials at the advanced stage have been done overseas where, sadly, they've had a higher level of natural infection than we've had. And it's usually large numbers, 20, 30,000 or more of subjects. And it does seem that the two vaccines we have, the Pfizer vaccine given at a three-week interval or the AstraZeneca a 12-week interval between the two doses, are of, are of similar efficacy. There's also 
testing of the responses, not only on whether or not people get sick, but also looking at the immune response in their blood samples. And there's encouraging data on prevention of symptomatic disease and transmission of infection. But clearly how well these, disease, these vaccines work to prevent asymptomatic disease and disease and transmission will take uh, some months to, to really get clear data on. Vaccines are complex biological products. They're, they're not a small molecule like aspirin that can be manufactured uh, in most chemical plants pretty easily. And, and making sure that the products are consistent between every batch, free of contaminants and sterile, is also a significant challenge. And that's why, for example, we first of all approved the AstraZeneca vaccine made in Europe, but then we had to turn around and do almost as much work to look at all the manufacturing of a vaccine made here in Melbourne. But vaccines are one thing. Vaccines actually don't stop diseases. Getting vaccinated, vaccinations stop diseases. And of course, public transparency and confidence is absolutely essential and central to, uh, uh, being, to actually the impact of vaccines on, on the spread of, uh, of COVID. In Australia, vaccination is not mandatory. It's, it's a decision that every individual will, will make based on the information they hear. And we've taken the view, and it wasn't always something that comes naturally again to my political masters, but uh, I advocated strongly with our minister and prime minister and they accepted it, but transparency was, was overarchingly best. So for every time we prove a product, we publish a couple hundred pages of information, ranging from consumer information through to, for the medical professionals, all the information that we looked at, or the summary of the information, in reaching the decision. Warts and all, what we do and what we don't know about the product. But of course, after a vaccine is approved, only about 20% of the work is done. Most of the work is actually monitoring its safety and performance after it's been approved. And Again, transparency is absolutely important there. So we publish weekly dashboard summaries on how many people have been vaccinated, how many adverse event reports have been received, what those reports are about. So for example, after most of the vaccines, and this is a common thing, uh, it goes back to say vaccines for tetanus and so on, vaccines do cause short-term reactions. And so the, the COVID vaccines can cause fever, chills, pain, fatigue, or headache for 24, 48 hours, in about half of the people vaccinated, they feel, they feel quite off colour for a day or two. That surely is a lower price to pay than uh, contracting COVID. Now, to date there have been relatively few, but there have been some rare adverse events. So there's been a small number of people, particularly the Pfizer vaccine, who have had an anaphylactic, this is a severe allergic response. And that actually happens with a range of vaccines. And so part of our role is to identify how common that really is, whether it's attributed to the vaccine, and then to work with medical groups right through to GP groups uh, on making sure that there are systems in place. So if someone does have a reaction, in that case, they get a shot of adrenaline. They're monitored for 30 minutes. If they have a record of, of being anaphylactic, this very specific life-threatening allergic response, but they may not have that particular vaccine. And so, again, we're not hiding the fact that it's a very rare, in this case it uh, depends one in 200,000, but you know, there's always debate about the numbers, but it's, but it's not one in a thousand, it's one in hundreds of thousands. There's some uh, association uh, potentially emerging between a very rare 
blood clotting syndrome and the AstraZeneca vaccine. And again, we're trying to establish just how rare it is. We know it's very rare, but of course, the decisions you may make as a regulator if something is one in 200,000 or one in a million are very, very different in terms of risk versus benefit if something is, say, one in a thousand. We currently believe it's in the hundreds of thousands, and we also are learning more and more as each day, day goes on about, again, how patients, if they are in that small number, and we have one potential case here in Melbourne, uh, can be best treated and how they can recover well afterwards. But, but that's the hardest part of the job of a regulator, to work out risk versus benefit and how much risk is acceptable. What is also an absolutely central part of that is, an, is informed consent of the individual. So where do we get information on safety? We get it from individual doctor's reports, uh, pharmacists, once they'll be able to administer a vaccine, individuals can report directly, and uh, from states and territories. And you can imagine the challenge it is with sa in safety of vaccines in, in determining cause and effect. Uh, the other way we also get information, I would add, is through SMS messages to certain groups who are vaccinated. They, they get a message to report any adverse events and to remind them to have a second shot. Causation is so hard because, unfortunately, and the world would be a crowded place if this wasn't a fact, unfortunately, on average, 500 people die in Australia every day of a year. And they die from a range of things. And so let's say you have a myocardial infarction or a heart attack or a stroke, and there'll be a significant number of that 500 who'll die from that. What if those people just by chance had the vaccine two days before? They've probably done a lot of things if they were not sort of in aged care and, uh, and immobile. They've probably done a lot of normal activities of daily living. They've probably gone to Coles or Woolworths as well as had the vaccine. They, they may have gone to the footy. Our challenge is trying to determine cause and effect and, and one of the things you have to do is also look at the back, so-called background rate. So if someone has, you know, if they have a one in a hundred thousand chance of, of getting some rare disease, is there an increased rate in those who have been vaccinated or not? And then we also drill down and look at the individual case histories and learn all about this. And when we do find about risk, we communicate it as widely as possible, how to look for signs in those individuals, and then also medical advice on how to treat those individuals. So. So, you know, people have a recovery because sometimes if it's a, if it's a new effect, the uh, hospital may not be briefed on, on how to treat those particular types of patients. I mentioned that supporting our Southeast Asian and Pacific neighbours is a key part of the response too. And they've been very significantly impacted by the COVID pandemic. We've, we've seen the, the issues in Papua New Guinea. We've actually been working extremely close with Papua New Guinea. Uh, in fact, one of my colleagues just got off the phone with them about an hour ago, I was just checking the message, uh, on, on, on their rollout and their approval of their vaccine. But the impact on economies in our region has been hugely variable, but it's, all, but it's almost been uni universally bad. So if you take Fiji and Indonesia, just as a comparison, Fiji's one of the larger economies in the Pacific. They've only had two deaths, thank heavens, and only 67 cases last time I looked a week or so ago. But what's their economy dependent on? Tourism, about 40%, I think, of their GDP being turned off, essentially, international tourism into Fiji. So economically, and the livelihoods of individuals, because almost every family in Fiji will have someone who either works in or even if they're growing vegetables for the tourist industry is highly dependent on it, right through to a country like Indonesia, which we're told has had 1.5 million cases, but we suspect it could be three times that number. 
We're told it's had 41,000 deaths, but again, we suspect it could be much higher. And there, of course, has been a more direct health impact, as well as a flow on economic impacts as well. So massively different impacts, but, but countries right through from biggest to the smallest in Asia and Pacific have been seriously affected. The Australian government's committing $500 million to secure access to vaccines through participation in a, a facility called COVAX and advanced purchase agreements. That'll help some of the smaller countries achieve full vaccination coverage, and it'll also contribute towards vaccines for most vulnerable people. Now, my organisation is not in the business of buying and selling vaccines, but we're underpinning that effort by providing technical support to assist with the assessments by these countries, making their own sovereign decisions about safety efficacy of these and performance of these vaccines. We're working with some of these countries to establish safety monitoring systems. And the nature of what we do is very different depending on the level of sophistication of a country's health system. So what we're doing with Thailand, for example, is helping them set up their manufacture of vaccines. Uh, there's a major company that's going to be manufacturing vaccine for about 10 countries and 10, 10 regional countries in Asia and the Pacific. On the other hand, with East Timor, we'll actually be helping them set up their safety reporting system. And that builds on previous collaborations in the region in strengthening their medicines regulatory system. And for example, in, in the Pacific, checking that their medicines actually were, were, hadn't broken down during transport and that they'd purchased the appropriate product. Unfortunately, we found in our four-year collaboration with the Pacific that often medicines save a high blood pressure had broken down or had been stored in hot, humid conditions and were no longer effective. So people with hypertension were taking a medicine that was frankly doing nothing. We were able to go back to them and say, that lot is no good anymore. By the way, buy it from a different place. And here's, we know you don't have sophisticated storage, but even things like keeping it out of humidity will make that medicine last an extra year. And people won't have stroke and heart attack if, if their medicines are more effective. But again, confidence is absolutely important in, in vaccines. Uh, going back, talking about the Pacific again, in Samoa in 2018, in July 2018, two toddlers, babies and toddlers, died after, unfortunately, the nurses reconstituted the vaccine wrongly and put a toxin in with it. Now, that led to the whole vaccination campaign for Mrs. Measles, Mumps, Rubella vaccine. It led to the whole campaign being suspended uh, for a few months, uh, even though it was nothing to do with the vaccine itself. A mistake had been made and they'd grabbed a paralytic agent. That led to a decrease in vaccination, once, even once it restarted, down to 31%. So only one in third or less of, of families were vaccinating their kids. In the coming months, 83 children and toddlers died, all unnecessarily. And so you can see the importance of confidence and transparent communications in vaccine programs, and also the importance of being timely in investigating safety or potential safety issues. So it's an honour that uh, we can also contribute to our region as well. Now, now, just to wrap up, there's a few uncertainties that remain. We don't know how long vaccines provide protection for. In any event, it's likely with some of these variants that you've heard about that we may need a booster shot. It'll, it'll be like the flu, and we're hoping that uh, uh, while the flu can still be quite serious in, in individuals, that it'll, it'll it will, I think, become one of these things we'll live with rather than something that will be eliminated entirely. There are new vaccines for these variants and newer types of vaccines being developed anyway. And of course, uh, data will emerge on the use of vaccines in children and pregnant and breastfeeding women. 
But additional strategies to vaccination will continue to be needed. And many of the changes, whether it's distancing, whether it's hand hygiene and so forth, whether it's face masks even in certain situations, will, I think, continue for some time. There will be a need for effective COVID medicines. And uh, while there are three medicines that have reasonable effect and are useful, especially in hospitalised patients, we still don't have the breakthrough blockbusters like we have for HIV or hepatitis C. But there's a lot of work going on globally for those. But just uh, to finally reflect on the impact of vaccination, because I want to return to this wonderful organisation that is Rotary. Australia, firstly, has a lot to be proud with of vaccination. Uh, since the introduction of vaccination for children in 1932, a long time ago, not as old as this club, but 20 years younger, uh, deaths from vaccine pre preventable diseases fell by 99% in Australia, even though our population increased by threefold. We eliminated endemic measles in 2014, rubella in 2018. Rotavirus has been reduced by three quarters over the last two, two decades, and Australia was declared polio-free 20 year, 21 years ago in 2000. And of course, the HPV vaccine uh, was introduced in Australia as the world's first. And Rotary's proudest achievement, I would suggest, has been its role in helping end the epidemic of another debilitating and deadly disease, polio. And of course, Rotarians have contributed over $2 billion US towards that, but also the, the massive hands-on effort to help protect over 3 billion children. And there's only pockets now in Afghanistan and Pakistan, largely because of civil unrest and war, uh, that, that remain resistant and, and there's still some, pol some po uh, polio. And I'm very excited that the, as part of 100-year celebrations, Rotary's partnered with UNICEF to implement immunisation programs to protect 100,000 children from rotavirus, pneumococcal disease and cervical cancer in nine South Pacific countries. I think the importance of this Rotary initiative cannot be overstated. And I'm certain that some of the groups we're working with, and this is where the world is such a small place, I'm certain that some of the groups that we're working with on vaccines and vaccination in the South Pacific will be working alongside that rotary effort, our COVID work and, and this very important rotary thing. So finally, apart from a direct loss of lives and illness, the massive economic, social and, and dislocation in our own country, and particularly in the poorer countries of Asia Pacific, there are still, there are still things to reflect on and to celebrate. We've heard the debate on whether vaccines are being shared equitably between Australia and, and other countries, and that it will take several years for the world's population to receive a vaccination. But despite these challenges, it's true to say that I think we're on the cusp of an opportunity. We have greater trust in governance. We have greater cohesion. Uh, we have greater civil alignment. It's, it's become a cliche, we're all in this together, but I think I guess personally, I've noticed that people have just been a bit more caring and considerate of each other over the last 12 or more months. And so the question, of course, is how can we maintain this as hopefully we're walking into the light coming out of this tunnel. Just importantly, we've also heard about the strengthening of family and community ties and getting to know and look after your neighbours. And I do believe that uh, Rotary is one of the society societal institutions that can make a massive and is making a massive contribution to this. So, Thank you and well done and keep up the good work.